Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyal, your host. Today in the Latin Rite Church, the Western Lung of the Church, as you know, we deal with both lungs of the Church here, primarily the Eastern Lung, but you know, you can't have an Eastern Lung unless there's another Lung as well. And that other Lung, of course, is the Western Lung. It's part of the great complementary to the Church that we present in this program. So in the Western Lung of the Church, the Latin Rite to be specific, there is the Feast today of All Saints. The night before, of course, the what we know as Halloween, really means All Hallowed Eve. In other words, it means that we are going to prepare, we're doing an all-night vigil to celebrate on November 1st, the saints, all those who are in heaven. You know, this earth, we say that we are in the church militant, but then there's also now the church in heaven. In other words, the, the realized eschatology. In other words, what we're trying to strive for here on earth, for those who have successfully done it right, they become saints in heaven. So we have all saints in the Latin Rite, and I qualified it because in the Eastern Rite, and it's kind of a little bit confusing here, so we have to make sure we get it clear. November 1st is all saints in the Latin Rite. What follows from that, the next day is all souls, where the church prays for those who are perhaps not yet in heaven, who have passed on, perhaps they're in purgatory, we pray for them. In the Eastern churches, we have four all souls Saturdays, and they occur during Lent. But the Sunday after Pentecost is when we have in the Byzantine calendar our All Saints Day. So it's a little bit different. As always, you notice this is a perfect example of how in the complementarity, the two lungs of the church, we always arrive at the same point, but by different ways. So in the Latin rite, it's one day of all souls, one day of all saints. In the Eastern churches, it's four All Souls Days, one All Saints Day, but it comes the Sunday after Pentecost. The idea behind that in the Eastern churches is that Pentecost, of course, is the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the church, the early church. It's sort of the enlivening, the animation of the church. And it was a 
rather unifying event too. The apostles were all together in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes down upon them. They began to speak in the different languages of different people miraculously. And so it was a tremendously unifying event. It was unifying by way of diversity. In other words, they were able to speak in the languages of various people, but they unified the people by the truth that they spoke animated by the Holy Spirit. So this is a tremendously communal or unifying experience. So in the Eastern churches, the Sunday after this unifying experience, we celebrate all those who are unified, especially in heaven. So we celebrate all saints then. In the Eastern churches, the all souls occur during Lent because it's a penitential season and we are preparing or thinking about death and judgment. And so we think about those who have in fact passed on who are experiencing their judgment. Perhaps they're not yet in heaven. They're, as the prayers say, detained for a while. So we continue to pray for their souls. In the Western church, they use the idea or the word purgatory. The Eastern churches don't necessarily use that word specifically, but they have a very, very similar theological concept. Both East and West have the idea that when people die, they may not necessarily be ready to move directly into heaven. So there's a some kind of perhaps a waiting period, a waiting state, some state of further purgation. That's why we get the word purgatory, further cleansing. See, in the scripture, it says that nothing impure will be in heaven. So if we are not yet pure, if we're not yet saintly, then there is a chance that we're not in heaven yet when we die, at least not right away. We certainly have reasonable hope that a person that we knew was faithful is in heaven or eventually be there. Now, notice I said a person that we know that we believe is faithful. We don't say there's a reasonable hope for everyone to be in heaven. We'll say there's a reasonable hope for people whom we might know to be faithful people, good people, to be in heaven, a reasonable hope. But because we don't know, only God can judge, we pray for them always. It's a way of loving them, too, a way of being connected with them, especially not only in prayer, but in the Eucharistic prayer, because in the body and blood of Christ, heaven and earth are united in a very, very intimate and special way. And that's why we use intentions. We have intentions for the liturgy because the sacrifice of the liturgy, the unbloody sacrifice of the Eucharist in that moment is that union of heaven and earth. We actually enter into, we connect with the next life so that either in the next life or in this life, in the Eucharist, we all become one. God, in a sense, spans both lives, the, the, the life here on earth and eternal life. It, it is united in God. And so if the bread and wine becomes the body and blood of Christ, so too then those who are in the next life and those in this life united together. And so that's why we pray for them, especially in the liturgy, so that we are in fact united with them and we unite our prayers with and for them that they are in heaven. Now, we do know certain people are in heaven that are declared saints because one of the criteria to know that for certainty are miracles that occur on this side of eternity when we pray to those who are on the other side of eternity. Usually, it's required to have three miracles. In other words, three things that nothing can explain, science cannot explain. Usually, it's a miracle cure after somebody prayed to that particular person. And when that cure happens in a way that is absolutely miraculous, that nothing, nothing can explain why this happened. Medical science cannot explain why this person was cured. When that happens, then the church 
then confirms that this had to have been the work of the intercession of a saint. And if there's a couple of them that can find a couple cases like that or three cases, then that person is declared a saint. Now, route there, they can be declared venerable or blessed, which means they're very holy, probably in heaven. But the the full-blown sanctity, that full-blown status of being a saint proclaimed by the church is a certainty that they are in heaven interceding for us. In the Eastern churches, we have an interesting perspective on saints. It's similar in the Latin rite, of course, but in the Eastern churches, a saint is seen as someone who, and we use this word a lot in Eastern churches, participates in the divine nature. In other words, participates in the very life of the Trinity, has the indwelling of the, of the Trinity in them. The saint in the Eastern church are people who, especially if they're what we call mystics, they're not people who necessarily have stigmatas or levitate and so on, as in the Western church. They're people who would glow with what the Eastern church would call the light of Tabor. So these holy people would have the certain glow with the light of Tabor. And the, and the reason for that, and it's very interesting how even the revelation of, of someone's sanctity goes according to the different character of the two lungs of the church. In the Western church, there's a very strong emphasis on the redemptive suffering of Christ. So many saints, or certain ones at least, mystics, would have stigmatas. In other words, they would have the wounds of Christ, such as a famous one would be St. Padre Pio, kind of a modern-day saint. And they would also sometimes bear the other wounds of Christ and, and have blood and so on coming from them in a way that Christ did on the cross and in his suffering. This would be found in some of the saints, the mystics in the Western Church. In the Eastern Church, you had, and again, it's commensurate with the emphasis, the Eastern spirituality, which is on transfiguration, on radiance and resurrection. You would have saints that would be known to have a particular glow. Again, it's called the light of Tabor. And they participate in that light. So in the West, it's the redemptive suffering that becomes a sign of their sanctity. And in the East, it becomes this resurrected or this light of Tabor glow that they have. Now, the criterion for saints is very similar to the Eastern churches as in the West. However, in the West, you often find someone proclaimed as a saint just because people proclaim him as such. There's an overwhelming proclamation over time and so on. They don't necessarily need to have the actual miracles that are confirmed. The West, they're very strict about having the miracles. In the East, yes, they do have miracles. The saint can be proclaimed as a saint large on the basis of the fact that people just say that they are. In other words, it's like the Holy Spirit working through the church. And we don't mean to be superficial about this. It's not just an opinion. This is something that is seen as the voice of the Holy Spirit working through the church, through that church militant, through that church still here on earth, that if there is this consistent unanimous proclamation of the sanctity of the saint, then the church in the East oftentimes declares them a saint. And oftentimes there are miracles that follow from them. Certainly there are miracles that we find out later on that came from intercessory prayer to that saint. But their canonization doesn't necessarily always depend upon the miracles in the Eastern churches. So what makes someone a saint? How do they become a saint? Well, when we get back, we're going to talk more about that as we see the differences in the approach to sanctity in the East and the West. Not fundamental differences, but always differences of emphasis and style. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. 
in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. New from EWTN Publishing. A Crisis in Culture, How Secularism is Becoming a Religion by Father George Rutler. In this timely and penetrating book, Father Rutler shows how the West's decade-long cultural assault against Christianity is finally reaching its inevitable conclusion, the self-destruction of our culture and society. In Father Rutler's book, discover why the Catholic faith is the only means by which civilization can be restored, the difference between nostalgia and tradition, why the 20th century produced more martyrs than all previous Christian centuries combined, and what happens when we let the government, rather than the church, become our mother. These are some of the insights you'll gain in A Crisis in Culture, How Secularism is Becoming a Religion. Available now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic. Shop EWTNRC.com. You're, you're listening to Father Thomas Loyan on Light of the East. You are listening to the Choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the Sacred Liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at ByzantineCatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loyer, your host. And our prayers and our well wishes to all of our, our Latin Light brethren, those of the Western Long of the Church who are celebrating today All Saints Day. And as I mentioned, the Eastern Churches, All Saints occurs on the Sunday after Pentecost in the Eastern Churches. But regardless, we rejoice with our fellow Latin Rite brethren in their celebration of All Saints. And we also share in the whole theology or spirituality, the reality of saints, just that we do so in our respective ways. But a saint is a saint, let's face it. Sometimes I'm asked, do the Eastern churches have the same saints as the Western church, or vice versa? The answer to that is, yes, some, but each church has its own respective saints as well. But we do share many of the saints too. And this is especially the case from the saints that came in the first millennium especially in the first several centuries. There's more saints in common between the East and West earlier in the church, especially within or up to the first millennium, because after the first millennium, after the first thousand years, unfortunately, there was a great schism in the church. And so 
any saints that came after that in the East or the West are not necessarily shared or they don't really know that much about one another's saints because they weren't talking very much after that schism. It was like a great divorce where the husband and wife are not really talking to each other that much anymore or not at all. But they're somewhat aware. Each one is aware that they have saints, but they're just not fully aware as they were before the split, before the great schism of 1054 AD. Very unfortunate because we are emboldened by one another's saints. I mean, let's face it, a saint is a saint. And sometimes there's a popularity among a saint in one lung of the church for a saint in the other lung of the church. For example, in the Eastern churches, St. Teresa of Lisieux is actually very popular. St. Francis is popular too. They are actually in our calendar, not as the chief saint of that day, but they are in our calendar as kind of a secondary saint that we celebrate. So there are some saints in the Latin Rite Church that are popular. There's a devotion to them in the Eastern churches. But by and large, the East and West have their own saints, and yet there is some overlap between them. In the Eastern churches, how does someone become a saint? What is the criterion? Well, as I mentioned earlier, we look at a person as being immersed in or participating in the life of the Trinity and the Trinity sort of indwelling in them. So it gives them a certain holiness, a certain wisdom. They're capable of great things. It's amazing what some of these saints are capable of when they hear their stories. I know some of it could be kind of legendary. Maybe there's some padding of the story or embellishment. But by and large, the stories of the saints are quite remarkable and generally pretty true in terms of what they're able to accomplish. And they're able to accomplish these things because they were being animated by the Holy Spirit. Asceticism is a very big part of the recognition of a saint in the Eastern churches. And this is why we have so many saints that come from the monastic tradition. It's almost like if you're a monastic, you have a certain advantage over the others. We do have saints who were married, but the monastics seem to have the advantage. It's really, it, it's really kind of that case in the Western church as well. Let's face it. Think of how many saints you know of. Majority of them were celibate. And there are many married saints too, but majority of them are celibate in the East and the West. Now, the reason why they are in the East, again, not all saints, but many of them are celibate, is because monasticism was a venue for holiness, for a lot of holiness, a lot of heroic witness to the gospel, to sanctity, through asceticism, through the practice of virtues, through constant prayer. I mean, some of the ascetical lives of these saints were just incredible. It would be unthinkable for many of us to endure what they endure, the kind of rigors they endure, the kind of fasting, many times sleeping very, very little, praying constantly. They would memorize the whole scripture and they would pray the Jesus prayer hundreds of times a day. They would live in the desert, the harsh desert, very hot during the day and cold at night, full of all kinds of temptations of the demons. Yes, when the saints went out to the deserts, they went out to encounter God, the God that is within them. Yet they knew they were encountering the devil. Remember, the devil even lured Christ. Christ allowed him to do this, but he lured Christ out into the desert to tempt him before Christ began his ministry. So even Christ allowed himself to encounter the devil in the desert. Desert is a wonderful place. It's a marvelous place for both, for encountering that God that is within us, but also encountering the demons. It's amazing. We hear the stories of these monks and their actual encounters with demons. It was very real. But they practiced asceticism, which means the fasting and the prayer, the long, long hours of prayer, 
the reading and the memorizing of the scriptures, and they also did great acts of charity, and many of them became very, very wise. They became great spiritual masters. This was true, for example, of some of the, what we call the stylites. The stylites were saints who lived on a stylus, or another word for that would be a pillar. Yeah, they actually lived above everything and everybody on a pillar as hermits. There's a story of one of them, St. Simeon the Stylite, when the superior of the monastery that he belonged to came to him and he asked him, Simeon, come down from that stylus, come down from that pillar. And he said, okay, and he did. And he came down and the monk, the abbot said to him, okay, you can go back up now. I just wondering if you had the obedience to come down from that pillar if I asked you. Because you see, the stylites had a special form of being hermits. They were on, on that pillar, that stylus, away from everybody else. They weren't in the community with the other monks. And in monasticism, and when it comes to the pursuit of sanctity, you had to have special permission to be a hermit. Because monasticism, although it has that element of solitude, they realized that you could be very, very vulnerable, very tempted, that you needed community, you needed common prayer with others. But they would allow for hermits. And when they did so, though, however, they had to test them to make sure they weren't just escaping, that they just weren't you know, living a good life by themselves, not having any responsibilities other than their own survival. So the abbot came out to test Simeon the Stylite. Can he come down from his hallowed pillar where he was above all of the nonsense and the seemingly spiritual complacency of the world below and around him? Was he just into his own thing, being selfish, narcissistic? So the abbot tested him, and he passed the test. So the wisdom that these monks acquired is something that would draw people to them. They became very, very wise men. In fact, there are writings called the Sayings of the Desert Fathers. Also a book, it's a several volumes called the Philokalia. It's stories of these saints in the Eastern churches where their great wisdom is noted. There's like little anecdotes, little stories about a monk who encounters somebody, and then there's a story that comes out of that, that there's a lesson, uh, an example of their holiness then sometimes there's just things that they said, things that they wrote. But it's in what's called the Philokalia. It's spelled P-H-I-L-O-K-A-L-I-A. P-H-I-L-O-K-A-L-I-A. Philokalia. You can look up online. There's various places to, to get it, usually from Eastern Christian-type sources for liturgical books and spiritual books. But Philokalia is the name of this series of sayings and lies of the Desert Fathers. There's also the book itself called The Lies of the Desert Fathers, which also has these wonderful little sayings and anecdotes. I love reading these things because it's kind of like reading the Book of Wisdom in the Bible or the Book of Proverbs. It's sheer wisdom, but some of it can be very entertaining because it's great little stories about monks their wisdom, and also their holiness. Now, these monks lived in solitude. They lived away or in small communities, and they didn't necessarily have access to the sacraments. That's right. Well, how could they become holy? They became holy by their feeding upon the scriptures. These monks really knew the scriptures. They had the Psalms memorized, even many parts, if not all the Bible, believe it or not. And they fed upon that, but then 
a couple times in a year, especially once a year during the Lenten and Paschal season, they would come together in common worship to receive the Eucharist. So we can live, and there's precedent for growing in sanctity without necessarily partaking of the Eucharist every day because they weren't able to, they did not have access to it, but they fed on the Holy Scriptures, they fed on prayer, and then had access to communal prayer and Eucharist at least once a year, and they became saints, they became very holy. So it is possible and we have a precedent for that. Now, for those that do partake of the Eucharist every day, that's wonderful, that's fine. That, of course, works toward your own sanctification. But there is a broad spectrum of lifestyles in the church that did enable people to come to sanctity. But it boils down to that dying to self. Really, it's the affirmation of our baptism, the reaffirmation of that is really what sanctity is. It's about living in a radical way, the same baptismal promise that we all take. So we all have the potential to become saints. In fact, in the Eastern churches, they use with a small s, the word saints to those who have passed on because it's assumed that they were holy and they're going to their eternal reward. Again, we don't know for certain, so we keep praying for them, but there's a certain sort of safe assumption This is the expectation of the Christian faith. Once you're baptized, you're expected to live as a saint. And again, small s, not capital S. Capital S comes in when this church actually declares someone a saint. But in the meantime, there's a presumption of holiness, that you've lived this life of Christ, that you've lived out faithfully your baptismal promise. Once again, our prayers and greetings to all those who are celebrating those in Latin Rite, the Western Lung of the Church, All Saints Day today. Thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit byzantinecatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit byzantinecatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. News from around the world as it happens. Religious liberty, immigration, prayer, plus daily reports from the White House, Capitol Hill, and Rome. Get the Catholic News perspective on the things that impact your life on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh.